Hello, listener, and welcome to Straight Shot Health Talk. This is the podcast that provides honest and straightforward information about health, wellness, and how to survive our crazy healthcare system. This is for people who want to focus on getting well instead of just treating symptoms. Sound like you? Then let's get started. All right, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Straight Shot Health Talk. This is your host, Dr. Kevin. And my guest today is a very special guest. This is Dr. David Hanscom. Uh, Dr. Hanscom is an orthopedic spine surgery performing predominantly very complex reconstructive spine operations uh, at Swedish Hospital in Seattle. He's a board certified orthopedic surgeon. He has expertise in both adult and kid spinal deformities such as scoliosis and kyphosis, which is a humping of the spine. And he has devoted his practice in many ways to doing surgery on patients who have had multiple prior spine surgeries. He also is an interesting surgeon because he actively doesn't want to operate on people. He is looking for people who have uh, spinal deformities. He does no longer operate on patients for back pain, um, but I'm going to let him talk to us about that itself. This is going to be a very important interview, and I would advise you to maybe sit down Take a little time here and maybe take some notes throughout it. Dr. Hanscom, thank you for so much for joining us on Stray Shot Health Talk. Hi, Kevin. Uh, I appreciate being on the show. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to tell the story and give you a little bit of perspective. Um, I've been a spine surgeon in Seattle since 1986. And I trained in Minneapolis, Minnesota, which was a major spinal deformity fellowship at the time. Still pretty prominent fellowship. And I came out of there on fire. I've been on one of these, one of the surgeons had been on both sides of this fence. And for about seven or eight years, I did many, many back fusions for back pain because that's what I thought I was supposed to do. I felt good about it. I was zealous about it. And I kept getting frustrated because people just weren't doing very well. And I would use, use a test called a discogram. We would try bracing. We try all these things to try to figure out who would do well, who would not do well with spine surgery. Then in 1993, Dr. Gary Franklin in Washington published a paper showing that the return to work rate in the state of Washington after a spine fusion for back pain was 15%, 15%. In a two-year follow-up, the return to work, work rate was 22%. And then I looked at my own results, I looked at that data, and I, and I just stopped. So I realized that the fusions for back pain were not doing well. Then about the same time, a lot of my patients that had had fusions started breaking down above and below their fusions. And a lot of patients became came referred to me for breakdown above and below their fusions. And those are real problems. Those don't do well without surgery. So the combination of patients not doing well with the back fusion for back pain, and the fact that I was actually causing problems by doing a fusion, I just stopped doing the fusions back in 1993 for back pain. Okay. Can um, you describe a little bit about what a lumbar fusion is and what the most common indication is? Uh, it's just important for the listeners to, you know, everybody tell you hears back surgery, but there's different types, and it's it's really important to kind of differentiate those. So the basic theory when I was doing the fusion for back pain was that the disc itself, the space between the vertebrae, was the source of the pain. If you destroyed the disc by welding it together, so, so what a fusion does, it takes two vertebrae and turns it into a solid piece of bone. We use hardware like screws and plates and rods to hold things together temporarily to the fusion heals. If the fusion doesn't heal, the hardware will loosen or break. So the fusion depends on creating a solid piece of solid bridge of bone between the two vertebrae. So the theory is that if you get rid of the motion, 
get rid of the disc movement, you will get rid of the pain. What's really interesting is that we've known for decades that we do not know often what causes back pain. It's actually been well documented in the literature that disc degeneration is actually not a cause of back pain. In other words, you take 100 people off the street with normal spines, a high percent of those will have back pain like everybody else. If you take people with degenerated disc, arthritis, bone spurs, those people do not have back pain any more than the general population. In fact, many of them have no back pain at all. They've done even long-term follow-up studies of seven years, finding out if you have disc degeneration, the chance of developing back pain is no higher than a person without disc degeneration. So it's interesting that we actually do know that disc degeneration doesn't cause back pain, yet at the same time, the medical surgical community seems to ignore that data and is actually performing hundreds of thousands of fusions on back pain. Yes. I, you know, I, I, I'm just sitting here nodding, which nobody can see. Uh, I, I just think it's absolutely astounding because if you look at the data, I mean, there's just paper after paper after paper that says disc degeneration is normal. And right. what do you see? You know, what what I also see is, is this the danger is, you know, someone gets back pain and they go in and they get an MRI. And we know that early MRIs have an increased risk of both surgery and chronic pain. But then the doctor looks at it and says, well, they got, you know, your pain is coming from this degenerative disc. And it's like, how? <laughs> right. Now, there's also a paper out done last summer which shows that doctors right now are simply ignoring clinical guidelines when it comes to chronic pain. There's also data showing that people in the alternative medicine world are more effective dealing with back pain than traditional medicine. <clears throat> so the this, this story gets more interesting is that there's a paper in 2006 that showed that if you take a very carefully group, carefully selected group of patients who do not have anxiety or depression, and you did a one or two level fusion based on what's called a discogram, that's where you inject dye into the disc and see if it's painful, that the success rate was only 27%, period. And most people when they sign up for back surgery are thinking in terms of 80 to 90% success rate. Otherwise, why would you do such a definitive operation if the, if the success rate was 25%? And as we all know, the placebo effect is somewhere from 25 to 50%. So this doesn't even really reach placebo. On top of that, what I say is that once you've done a fusion, you've actually surgically assaulted the spine. And the spine is stiff. It has scar tissue. The spine will often break down above and below the fusion. And I've had people, we had one lady we operated on last week, that started out with a normal spine about seven years ago. She's had 10 operations. She's now fused from her neck to her pelvis. And she started breaking down, breaking down. And we just spent 15 hours in the last week trying to get her spine straight again. Oh. She lost 15 units of blood. She's, society has probably spent over $3 million on her care. And she's a train wreck. She's not going to do well no matter what we do. So that's just one, I probably see one in three patients every day in my office that have essentially normal spines for their age, that have had either major fusions done or recommended for back pain. And there's no pathology there to operate on. I don't, I don't want to add a, like a lead-in question here, but why, why do you think that is? Why, why do you think these fusions are being done so frequently? Well, I mean, the people give the simplistic answer because it's about money and production, and part of it's true. But there's a bunch of other reasons. Patients themselves actually demand the surgery. 
when patients come to me for their back pain and I say, look, the success rate is 25%, there's really nothing to operate on, it's actually a very unpleasant experience because the patient just explodes. They start ranting and raving about their pain, how nobody's listening to them, how I'm their last hope. And I'm going, that's fine, I understand you. We have solutions for your back pain, but it's not surgery. So it's actually fairly unpleasant to tell a patient who's demanding surgery not that you can't do surgery, number one. Second of all, doctors do get paid well for doing surgery. We don't get paid well for not doing surgery. So the patient's demanding sur surgery. The hospital system's demanding production, which means more procedures. But also the patients themselves would rather have something done to them than to do something for themselves, like good solid rehab, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So it's a combination of forces, I think, that causes the um, rate of spine surgery to go up. The other two things that other two things is that doctors themselves are, are simply not taught anything about chronic pain in medical school residencies or fellowships at all. So we're just doing what we're trained to do. So we don't really have an awareness of, of, the, of the other possibilities. No, I, I, I completely agree. You know, I, I think other problem is, you know, we're taught in medical school that we're supposed to be having the answers. And I could just imagine for a surgeon where you're supposed to be providing definitive care, it's even worse, where, right. where we want to do something. We are trained to do something in, in right. a lot of cases for many, right. many, many diseases, not just back pain. Uh, right. There really isn't a whole lot we could do, and it's not what we shouldn't be doing. Right. But. The part to me that's become extremely interesting in the last month or two is that they've done these what's called a functional MRI scan research studies where they injected glucose into the vein that's radioactive or, or some type of magnetic dye that goes to the different parts of the brain that shows where the brain is active versus where it's not. They took a group of volunteers who had had back pain for less than three months and when they scanned them, there's a part of the brain that, light, that corresponds to the back pain center that lit up. Then they scanned patients who had chronic pain for more than 10 years, and they found that the pain center had dropped down. The center that lit up was the emotional center. Mm -hmm. The problem is whether it was the emotional center or the pain center, it was still hooked to the same pain generator, the amygdala, which caused a very unpleasant sensation. So basically, the transmission's the same, but you change the engines. So surgeries for acute pain to solve that particular problem, if you're doing surgery and actually it's the emotional part of the brain that's turned on, it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. So basically, the, then they did a, the, the part of the study that's very fascinating is that about half of the acute pain patients turned into chronic pain patients. They scanned the entire group every three months for a year. By 12 months, the pain center has switched completely over to the emotional center. So you can't do surgery on emotional pain and expect it to work. You're just shooting at the wrong target. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, for that, that chronic pain is a, definitely a different entity from acute pain. In the, in the you know, I did a couple uh, talks on this for the podcast, but I'm just going to remind people is, you know, pain by definition has two components to it. I mean, there's a sensory and emotional experience. And what I used to try to explain to patients is, you always will have that emotional, that central driver, which is which is that brain, how it processes that signal that's coming from the body. And in chronic pain, that's often the primary driver. And if we do right. anything to eliminate that peripheral nerve fiber, that nociceptive signal, uh, we haven't done anything to affect that central role. And for me, as a when I was doing uh, injections and things, it wasn't uncommon that you would maybe 
maybe their back would feel better with an injection, but they would start complaining about shoulder pain or something else. And it's because you have all these nerve transmissions coming from your body, going to that same sort of uh, central processing unit that is firing aberrantly. Right. Well, it even gets more interesting because also we know that degenerated discs do not cause back pain. We also know that anxiety and depression have been negative predictors, I'm sorry, predictors of negative outcomes for many, many decades. So we know in the presence, there's over a thousand research papers documenting that if you're anxious or depressed or both, that the chance of a successful surgical outcome is dramatically compromised. In fact, there's more correlation of a successful outcome with the state of mind than there is actually with with anatomy. On top of that, there's several research papers showing for for hip and knee arthritis that that the severity of the arthritis has nothing to do with the pain. Mm -hmm. In other words, people with bone-to-bone arthritis often have minimal pain. People with minimal arthritis often have have severe pain. What they found out that actually correlated with the degree of stress. Mm -hmm. So it boils down that this interpretation of the pain signal is very subjective based on a given mood, given day, given stress. And my patients that are good at this have a clear connection between stress and the pain. So pain to stressor, there's other stressors. It's not psychological. It's just an intertwining of the pathways. So what happens, we now take all our patients for any surgery. We put them through a six to 12 week process, sometimes longer. We get them sleeping, which calms down the nervous system. We start some simple writing exercises. And the bottom line is we decrease their anxiety by at least 50%. What we have found out, we have over 30 patients now that that we're writing a research paper on that as we've calmed down the nervous system, it seems to raise the pain threshold, even with pretty major structural problems, which do respond well to surgery, their pain goes away. They've never gone, they have never gone to surgery. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. And that I did not expect. That that came out of the blue about two years ago. So we've got 33 patients now we're writing this research paper on, and it's unbelievable. Yeah, it, it, it is. It's fascinating um, because people, this, this is the other frustrating thing I have with about pain is that people do try to distinguish between a real pain and an unreal pain. And oftentimes they'll say, well, it's an emotional pain is unreal pain. And all pain is pain. And all pain is, is, is unpleasant and destructive. And um it's really trying to address that those factors that propagate pain and you know anxiety depression anger are huge drivers in the pain experience so well we also know that mental pain and physical pain are processed in basically the same part of the brain there's so we put in a seminar back in new york at the omega institute we basically treat mental pain and Physical pain is exactly the same entity. And indeed, as anxiety drops, their pain drops, as their pain drops, their anxiety drops. So they're just interconnected, intertwined pathways. But remember, when a pain signal comes from your knee or your hip or or your back, that has to be interpreted by your brain as positive, neutral, or negative. Mm -hmm. Same thing with all your other emotions. It has to be interpreted as positive or negative by the nervous system. So that processing center exists in about the same part of the brain. So it's really actually not much point in, in, in even trying to differentiate those two. Yeah, no, and and I wish we would, we wish I wish we would quit using those terms right. as physicians. It's uh, uh, it's a long battle though, as I I 
you know, it's, I, I do some physician, talking to some physicians here, and it, it's not uncommon that they'll say, well, is this real pain or unreal pain, or this is emotional right. pain versus right. physical pain? That's yeah. like, it's all pain. You know? Well, it gets even more interesting in that I have patients now that are 10 out of 10 on their anxiety, depression, irritability questionnaire. And I say, look, we're not doing surgery until the anxiety's calm down. I said, by the way, what if I did your surgery and got rid of your leg pain, but your anxiety stayed exactly the same as it is now, and as you get older, anxiety always gets worse. Mm -hmm. What would that be like? And they go, that would be terrible. And they instantly grab the leg and go, well, by doing the surgery, is not, isn't, that going to calm, isn't that going to calm down my anxiety? And I go, no, it's a different problem. So then I asked, well, what if we calm down your anxiety and you had the pain left in your leg that you're living with right now, what would that be like? And they go, well, I wouldn't like that. I uh, actually could deal with it. I mean, the bottom line is that raw anxiety is almost intolerable. I went through my, I went through this myself for about 15 years, and it's brutal. I mean, raw anxiety is absolutely intolerable. And so it gets mixed in with the pain system, and it's very hard to separate it out. But what I finally realized that I'm asking the wrong question over the years, that what I'm really asking is that and we operating on your pain or your anxiety. And the bottom line is people really, really want to get rid of their anxiety. Mm -hmm. But the final point I want to really make here, which blew me away, I think I sent you these papers, is that there's actually dozens of research papers documenting that was simple, uncomplicated surgeries like hernias, gallbladders, back, I mean, chest surgery, breast biopsies, et cetera, that there's a 10 to 40% chance of actually inducing chronic pain with a simple procedure. And the risk factor is being anxious or depressed before the surgery, which is which is a treatable problem. So if I told you that my surgical complication rate was 10 to 40%, the odds are you are not gonna send me a send, send me much surgery, right? No. But on top of that, chronic, but see my complications heal, whether it's an infection or dural tear, those complications heal. Chronic pain doesn't get better unless you treat it correctly. So a 10 to 40% chance of actually causing chronic pain by surgery is huge. So surgery is not only not the definitive answer, it's actually quite risky. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. You know, and it's, um, it was just reminded me of something I was reading the other day about pain. And I was, you know, wondering why it is so resistant in so many ways. But it's basically a survival mechanism. And there's like two, I think it was two processes that we will never acclimatize to. And one of them was loud noises. And I guess when we were running around through the, the plains or whatever, 200,000 years ago, we needed to know loud noises so that we could hear the saber-toothed tiger coming. But the right. other one is chronic pain. And they're, they're both of those the brain does not adapt to. And sure. yeah, it, it's, it's, just, it's just very interesting to me. No, I agree. Now, you did touch on something there. And I, and I would like you to, if you don't mind getting into it a little bit more, because a lot of times, you know, patients or people they don't understand or they may think that a doctor does not know where they're coming from. And particularly with chronic pain, a lot of chronic pain patients feel like they're all alone in their pain, that no one else is experiencing things similar. And then certainly not the doctor in front of them has experienced what they're experiencing and cannot empathize or really understand what it is that they're going through. But that's different with you. Would you mind talking about that a little bit? Well, I'll use the, um, I don't, I would not choose to do this again if I had a choice about this, but one of the huge advantages I have dealing with my patients with chronic pain is that I had chronic pain for 15 years 
And I would say seven of those years were almost intolerable. In fact, they were intolerable. And I cannot believe I made it through. So I actually have 18 medical colleagues dead from suicide, and I was almost number 19 because I had no hope, no way to go, no way out. I was absolutely miserable beyond description. So I had what I only found out a few years ago, what I was actually suffering from was called mind-body syndrome. And I also did not realize that chronic pain is one of the core symptoms of mind-body syndrome as well as anxiety. So not only did I have extreme anxiety, I developed what's called an obsessive compulsive disorder, which is the ultimate anxiety disorder. And that's multiple repeated, repeated unpleasant intrusive thoughts. And as you know, we try not to think about something, you think about it more. And there's nothing I could do. I try medications, mindfulness meditation, all sorts of stuff. So one thing people don't understand when my patients tell me that I don't understand how they feel, that there's no human being that suffered more than I did. In other words, I, somebody might have suffered as much as I did, nobody suffered more. I was in chronic pain for 15 years, seven of those were absolutely intolerable, and that's a long, long time to be in that degree of chronic pain. So yeah, I, I, I got through it. So the book I wrote actually came out of that experience was the, um, it was my journey out of chronic pain. And I learned out of medical school or residency or fellowship. I didn't even learn it in practice. And it was finally after looking backwards, looking at my own experience and piecing things together, did we get a consistent pathway that people have been really, really successful with. Yeah. And- I've, actually, I've actually seen hundreds of patients now go absolutely to pain free. It's not about managing the pain. People really do go to pain free. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that is one of the most amazing portions about that, too, is is it really is people go pain free. Right. And, you know, we, we don't say that for anything else. We say, oh, we're going to reduce your pain by 50 percent with this or maybe right. it's going to last six months. Right. But the, it's the, really the difference about treating a symptom versus treating a source. Right. And if you address that source, you can actually cure it. And I think that's just absolutely amazing. Right. But it's also fascinating. There's over 30 symptoms of what's called the mind body syndrome. I had 16 of those at the same time. And what happens, your body is full of adrenaline because of the stress. Every organ system responds in a different way. So I had migraine headaches, I had burning in my feet, I had back pain, neck pain, tension, headaches, insomnia, I had ringing in my ears, and all those things are gone. Hmm. I mean, it's unbelievable. So as your body, as my adrenaline levels dropped, all these other organ systems calmed down also. It was, it was, it's been a remarkable journey. And, and without pills and without uh, surgery? Right. Yep, the yeah. pills didn't work, but yeah, I tried medications, counseling, all sorts of stuff, and nothing broke it. So I, I just got very, very lucky coming out of the hole. So that's where the book evolved from was, you know, it's, it, I got lucky, and then I sort of figured out, looking backwards, what happened. But I mean, 15 years is a long time to be in chronic pain. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And your symptoms, as I said, were very, very interesting. And, and I, I do, I just think it's important that people understand that there are physicians out there in chronic pain, that, that people have often gone through these experiences. Uh, and when you're telling someone, I don't, I'm not going to operate on you, and it's because I don't believe it's going to help you, it's because you honestly are not trying to deny them from care. Or, God, I'm trying to think of other weird things I've heard from people. It's Obamacare, or if I had insurance or good insurance, you'd do this. And right. You know, it's, you're actually looking out for these people. You don't want to hurt them more. Well, again, go back to that one study. I'm not, I mean, dozens of studies, and people don't understand how bad this can be. I saw two people today that had surgeries that were not very indicated. Both of them are way worse now than before they had surgery. And the data, and research just holds that up. Mm-hmm. I mean, people 
in chronic, I'm sorry, the other risk factor for, there's several risk factors for increasing chronic pain after the surgery, but the presence of chronic pain before surgery is a big deal. The presence of anxiety is a big deal. So what people don't understand in the presence of prior chronic pain and an anxiety depression, that surgery is very, very risky. It's just not the definitive solution. I mean, it's not like taking a car to the shop. I mean, cars don't have pain fibers. Mm-hmm. There's nothing to do with the mechanical world at all. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, wow. Well, Dr. Hanscom, um, I'm keeping you here a little bit longer than I anticipated, but what I would like to do, would would you come back for another episode here? I, I think we could talk about all sorts of stuff in the future, and I'd love to get into your DOCC project and uh, some other things that you're doing. Would that be okay? Yeah, I'd love to talk about the structured care approach. I have a lot of fun with that. It's a very self-directed approach. And they can you know look at my website if they like. You know, it's back-in-control.com. And the book provides the basis of the website. But the website evolved from my patient's successes. We didn't just make that one up. So it's open source. You just have to hop on and look at it. That's one thing. Um, there's also major implications of chronic pain on family issues and relationships. We could talk about that a little bit. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot of things we could cover. So, I'm, yeah, I'd love to talk about this stuff going forward. Fantastic. And I, what I'm going to do for this episode is I will have all those links to the website um, and as well as your book that's available on Amazon. Very good book, by the way, folks. Um, I used to prescribe it for patients that had back pain and were thinking of surgery. That was my prescription for them. I think it's a great source. And as I said, from, from your own personal experience, it's not only as a complex spine surgeon, but as a patient with who had had chronic pain, I thought it was, it, it was just a great resource for them. Um, so I look forward to having you back in the future. And until then, I hope you would take care and thank you so much for, for coming on the show with me. All right, Kevin. Well, thanks a lot. All right. Thanks. We'll talk to you guys all soon.